I mean, it all comes back to instincts. If your instincts are not telling you to have your baby go to sleep at rest, then okay, that's fine. Right. But if your instincts are letting your baby fall asleep at rest, um, co-sleeping, you know, follow those instincts. And I, I love what you said about what your husband said, you know, what would we have done 1000 years ago? My mentor always said, what would we have done in the cave? Right. You know, what yeah. would the cave bees have done? It just simplifies everything. Hey sister, you are listening to the Daily Mom Trip Podcast and I'm your host, Jesse Trulove. Whether you are an exclusively breastfeeding mama, choosing a formula feed, pumping that liquid gold, or doing a mix of both, you are in the right place. In this episode, I am chatting everything from breastfeeding cavities to cave babies to breastfeeding while pregnant. I am joined today by international board certified lactation consultant to chat about all the milky things. Kelly Apirio, aka Kelly IBCLC on Instagram, is a holistic lactation consultant who has a focus on oral health and gut health. She is also a big believer in turning out the noise of unsolicited advice and trusting your mama gut, which hello, if you are listening to this podcast, then you already know that mama knows best. This episode is packed with golden nuggets, so let's dive in. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? how you got into this work, because I think you actually started um, going to school for exercise physiology and nutrition. So I am so curious to see how you kind of pivoted and actually ended up in this line of work. Yeah. So my name is Kelly Uperio. I'm owner of Boulder Valley Lactation. And actually my overall LLC name is Nourishing Instincts because I believe so much in moms trusting their instincts. So I love that. um, Yes. I got into this work. Yeah. I went to school for nutrition and exercise physiology, got my master's in nutrition and exercise physiology. I was actually a sports dietitian for both Florida state and university of Colorado. And while I was at the university of Colorado, I had my first baby and I mean, life changing (laughs) that always throws us for a loop, right? (laughs) Yeah. And basically that's what got me into this work. Um, for one thing, to be a really good sports dietitian, especially in the college world, you're traveling with the football team and whatnot. And I, first of all, did not want to do that. I also felt, you know, as much as I liked it and I loved helping a lot of the athletes and I felt like I had to teach them a lot of habits that were bad for their health in order for them to gain the weight the coaches wanted or, you know, and that just went it just went against everything that I knew. Your instincts. So, yes, <laughs> Those instincts exactly. were coming up. Those instincts were already in full force. Exactly. So I knew I wanted to be home with my baby. I didn't want to be at least traveling, right? And I, at the same time, like breastfeeding wasn't going perfect and I needed help and I couldn't find help. I found more help on the internet than I found in person around here. You know, the pediatricians weren't any help. The lactation consultants that I went to, I went to like a group at the hospital, no help. Um, And I found much more help on the internet. You know, later on, I figured out, you know, what was actually going on. Granted, I was able to compensate for her, but I wanted to become the help that I couldn't find. And that's what motivated me to start looking into this because I mean, I was like, where's the help? Where is it? You know, 
this yeah. is so interesting. I just actually got the chills because that is exactly the feeling. And what I say when I, when I talk about how I got into helping moms restore function in their pelvic floor and in their core, it's like, I found my message through my mess of postpartum. And I feel like so many people, so many moms that end up in these businesses end up in these entrepreneurships, right? Is because we are trying to become the support and resource that we were lacking in our own experience. Like we have to become this because I don't want any other moms to feel this way. And so I, it totally resonates with me when you say that, you know, I wanted to become the resource that I didn't have. And, um, you know, there's, there's never too much of that. And I feel like, especially with us going through our own experiences, uh, we all need different things and there's always something missing out there. So we all bring something new to the table. And I love that you kind of listened to that and pivoted and changed careers completely, you know, um, in a sense and shifted that nutrition support to, to babies and moms. And so I love that. I dove deep into a lot of your posts on your Instagram, trying to do research for this podcast. And I came across the concept of breast sleeping. What does that mean? And how normal is it for babies to fall asleep while feeding? Uh, Because according to social media experts, uh, they're constant moms are constantly being told that, that it's a crutch or bad habit. I realize that it's being labeled as a bad habit and moms are not questioning their instincts of whether they want to let their baby fall asleep at the breast. So I love this this idea of breast sleeping. Can we dive into that a little bit more? Breast sleeping is the symbiosis of the breastfeeding diet when they go to sleep and the baby has full access to the breast. I mean, babies want to be in close proximity. It's biology. They want to be in close proximity to mom Mm -hmm. um, at the breast if possible. And this is if you have enough supply, if you don't have enough supply, they want to be right there. This, that place on your chest, that is their home, um, that your body regulates them. Um, it regulates their digestion, regulates their body temperature, everything. Um, so that is where they're most stable and you know, studies on mom show they are also more relaxed when their babies are right on them Mm -hmm. and they have access to go to the breast. So you asked also, you know, how common is it that it to go to sleep at breast? And yeah, I mean, breastfeeding and breast milk, I always say it's magic, go to sleep juice. Yeah. You know, (laughs) I I mean, nature or biology, like it's supposed to get us to go to sleep. It's supposed to get them to fall asleep right there. And it's really unfortunate that it has become this thing. That's like the bad habit. Yeah. And I honestly, like it's been around that concept of it being a bad habit for quite a while, you know, yeah. my kids are 11 and nine now. And I definitely remember feeling that way. Yeah. Feeling that type of pressure, like, oh my gosh, I'm creating some sort of bad habit in my baby or spoiling them. Or my husband always has this, this saying, like if, if I'm questioning whether we should or shouldn't do something, he always says, what would a mom a thousand years ago do? If your baby is falling asleep while drinking milk and the goal is to get your baby to go to sleep, 
use what works, you know, if it's working for you, use it. If it's not working for you, you know, then it's, then you can change it. But I feel like for the moms that, you know, and I, I also don't want this to come across, like, if you're not doing this, that there's something wrong with you. Like you have to do what feels right for you. But my, like my experience as a mom that is, I breastfeed in public. I don't use a cover. Like I'm not, you know, bare, I'm not obviously doing it for attention. Like I don't think any mom feeding their baby is breastfeeding in public for attention, which is also some weird twisted concept that's on social media, uh, mostly in the comment section of most uh, breastfeeding accounts uh, from trolls. But the point of having you on here is to really like, we're not shaming anybody that doesn't do these things, but it's really just putting a mama's heart at ease that is questioning whether they are creating these bad habits or if, you know, I feel like, correct me if I'm wrong, but milk from your breast has sleep inducing properties. Part of that magic that is breast milk, you know, that's, it's part of the equation and the milk is intelligent too. You know, it changes depending on how old your baby is and whether baby is sick or not. And I think the sleep inducing properties are that's on your side. That's like a tool that you have, um, not something that should be shamed or questioned, in my opinion. <laughs> totally. I mean, it all comes back to instincts, you know, trusting your instincts. So if your instincts yeah. are not telling you to have your baby go to sleep at breast, then okay, that's fine. Right. But if your instincts are letting your baby fall asleep at breast, um, co-sleeping, if, and we'll, I know we'll get to that topic, but, you know, follow those instincts. And I, I love what you said about what your husband said, you know, what would we have done 1000 years ago? My mentor always said, um, what would we have done in the cave? Right. You know, what yeah. would the cave have done? It just simplifies everything. And, it just simplifies everything. If you think about it in those terms, because we are the generation of information and there's so much information out there. And I think that when we see moms doing things, it's like we should be doing them too or changing what we're doing. But there's a million ways to be a good mom and you have to just listen to your instinct. I love that your business is focused around instincts because I just, I just love that. And I think it's so important. And I think it's lost on so many people. I think we're kind of pushed to tune out our instincts when which really should be the opposite. Jumping to the next topic. Tell me about your thoughts on SIDS, breastfeeding, breast sleeping. Um, you've shared that Japan has the lowest rate of SIDS and they are very pro co-sleeping and breastfeeding. SIDS is one of those things that happens um, and it also happens in a crib, you know? And so it's like, I don't think anybody that's choosing to bed share, like we're a bed sharing family uh, that, we're asking for anything bad to happen. I think it's the opposite. You know, I want to be close so that I know what's happening. I love that you're sharing these uh, statistics. I would love to dive into that with you. Totally. And again, same thing as the last topic. I mean, nobody has to do this. Um, we're not saying like you have to bed share. It's so much better for them, but it is more of the biological norm. If we think back, like what would the cave babies have done? Just right. like you said earlier. Um, but also it's just been turned around in our society. So I really, I love diving into this topic. So let's just start like from a historical standpoint, you know, before modern society, 
we would work all day, probably baby wear and babies would feed here and there, but also moms would be busy working, you know, working, growing food, doing whatever it is they were doing Mm -hmm. and tending to other kids, everything. And then at night they would lay down with their babies and the babies would have full access to breast. And biologically, the way we produce milk, that actually makes a lot of sense because our supply is the highest overnight. Yes, it's so also, yeah, that's also the most important time to drive supply. These days we're always, you know, trying to get baby to put that all their feeds in during the day and then get baby to sleep all night. Yeah. And then our supply falls and then we're like, well, what happened, you know? But we're trying to go against nature and against biology. So it all makes sense. But yeah, so Japan, there's a lot of countries where co-sleeping is the norm. But I always like to look at Japan for a couple of reasons. Number one, um, it actually has the lowest rates of SIDS. I think that it's a very similar society to us in a lot of ways, very modern. You know, it's, it's not like we would picture maybe like a remote village in Africa or something. Right. Right. It's a very modern society, but you know, if we're looking at like, Oh, does co-sleeping cause, you know, the babies to die? Well, it must not be the co-sleeping, right? It has to be something else. Right. The really interesting thing here in the U S is most of our like recommendations around not co-sleeping have come from certain studies, one in particular, where other countries have looked at the same data. And instead of saying, absolutely do not sleep with your baby, they say, oh, most of it is caused by certain things. We should just actually educate as to how to do it safely. And so that's what I want to do because almost everybody I talked to, I used to run a breastfeeding group that had at least 20 mamas there all the time. And this was pre COVID. We would sometimes raise, raise your hand. If you have ever brought baby into your bed, you know, there is hardly a mama out there that hasn't at some point because right. the baby knows that that's where they want to be. Yeah. And, you know, so we need to teach people how to do it safely. That's there my was- whole thing is like, just prepare to do it. Even if you don't plan on doing it, like have the tools and resources to know how, because there might be a day that you do it or that you're so tired or that it just feels right. And just, you know, sharing that information, not just with yourself and educating yourself because knowledge is power, but also educating your partner because they're, they're a big part of that equation also and letting them know how to do it safely. It's helpful to have the tools and resources prior to that day coming up uh, to, to know how to do it safely. So I love that you brought that up. And when done safely, there's actually evidence that it prevents SIDS. I mean, just going back to what I mentioned earlier, like being on mom or being right next to mom, her body, you know, is regulating the body temperature, the breathing, mm-hmm. you know, the digestion of that baby. Mm-hmm. And when baby is more relaxed and using mom's body to regulate, there is less of a chance of SIDS. That's incredible. I just want to mention one study that I really think is interesting. It's called the Alaska study. There were about 250 um, SIDS deaths while co-sleeping. And so you can look at that and be like, oh, no co-sleeping. 
But when you look further into it, 99% of them had known risk factors. Taking a quick break to tell you about my cracked nipples breast friend. <laughs> Pun intended. I am talking about Silverette cups. They are my secret weapon for healing my cracked and sore nipples fast. I literally don't go anywhere without them. They are the perfect gift for any breastfeeding or pumping mama. The 925 Silver Nursing Cups are designed and handmade in Italy. They are clinically tested, FDA registered, and designed to be used to heal without creams or ointments. This is the ultimate mess-free way to heal without worrying about any residue on your nipple. Don't forget that your nipples are feeding the future, literally. They deserve the very best. I have a discount code for you guys. Use the code TRUELOVE at checkout to save 10%. Let's get back to the show. And it was like 75% were either smokers while pregnant or smoking post, probably both. Um, about 40 something percent were from drug use, were using some sort of substance. I can't remember all the exact numbers, but it was like 25% baby was sleeping prone, about 17% they were on a waterbed or a couch. Oh, yeah. um, and those were, I think those were the only risk factors, which we know that there's more to look into with safe sleep. However, when done correctly, but this study is exactly why we need to teach people. Right, exactly. Do it how to do it correctly, because it really can be safe and not just safe, but protective against mm -hmm. it. Absolutely. Is there anything else that would make it risky to bed share? For the first four months, we don't want them by dad. So breastfeeding moms have different instincts than mm -hmm. dad does. Dad will go to sleep or partner, I should say. This is looked at by James McKenna, but mm -hmm. the breastfeeding mom um, actually has lighter sleep and wakes up within a split second of baby struggling at all. And they wake up as much as they need to. Mm -hmm. And it's not necessarily like a full, full blown wake up. It's yeah. just like much as they need to, or partially wake up and make sure that the baby is okay. Mm -hmm. um, and then after four months or whenever they're rolling, um, then can be on the other side of mom. We want them on their back. We don't want them swaddled, which isn't great for them anyway. Oh, I kind of am interested about the swaddles. For me, my instincts are like, I think that they should just be like how we sleep, just like free to move their limbs and support themselves if they need to, or, you know, be able to, to wiggle. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Every, every movement that they're making is a reflex and they are mapping their body. They were learning to map their body as they move. And so even with just that information, it's like- Totally. That's mind-blowing to me right now. I love how you just said that. That makes so much sense. So much sense. Yeah. I mean, because they, they don't have any of that at first. Right. And the more that they move, the more that they figure out like where their arms are in space or where, you know, where everything is in space and they 100%. practice movements. So, um, it, it's so good for them to let them move. And, you know, sometimes, yeah, in the very, in the first couple months, if we need to calm them down and wrap them up. Okay. But in general, we want them to definitely be done with a swaddle by eight weeks and oh, wow. really, okay. Yeah. And really as much as possible, 
to have as much free time out outside of the swaddle, even when sleeping as possible. One of, so one of my kids had allergies and like never slept, right? So we co-slept for like three months. And then I tried to move him to his own surface and tried to swaddle him. And then I tried to, I didn't swaddle him at all before three months and then started after, like I was a hot mess. Later, I figured out the reason he wasn't sleeping was food allergies, but um, I was a complete hot mess. So whenever I'm saying these things like, oh, we shouldn't swaddle, absolutely no shaming. Yeah. Most of the stuff, like I did. You know, Same. like, I, I feel like we find, like, yeah. we, we figure it all out by trying, you know, like it's all like trial and error. Like there's no handbook to be like the, the perfect mom that like, doesn't exist, you know? And so totally yes. understand like where you're coming from. I've tried it all too. <laughs> I've talked to so many moms that felt like they weren't making enough milk and have had to supplement or switch to formula. Personally, I feel like my milk supply comes and goes in waves like according to baby, some days I feel like, gosh, I feel like I have a lot of milk today. And then like a couple of days later, I'm like, oh, like I'm a lot more soft and more like deflated. That's like a terrible way to describe <laughs> my, my breast, but def- more like just less, you know, like less milk. Can you tell us about some ways that your baby is getting enough? And then maybe like when a dip is actually too much. There's a bunch of signs that like anybody could just Google like, oh, do your swallows all of, you know, all of that kind of thing. Are they pooping every day? However, I, and this, you know, goes back to the instincts thing, but I like to teach moms, trust your instincts. Do you think things are going well? If not, if there's something that you think is off, then it probably is. And this is one of my biggest things because when I was breastfeeding my first, I felt like I didn't have enough milk and I would go to, you know, the breastfeeding group at the hospital and they're like, Oh, you're fine. A lot of women think that they don't have enough milk and they actually do, Mm -hmm. but that didn't settle that feeling inside me that, you know, something was wrong. And so if a mom comes to me and says, you know, I feel like I don't have enough milk. I'm like, you're probably right that something's off and you're in your breastfeeding relationship. Let's figure out what it is. So for me, I actually had enough milk. It was just that my baby couldn't get it. She wasn't a very good nurser for a lot of reason. And that happens a lot. So it doesn't matter. You know, I felt I, and what I think is very prevalent in our society is that as moms, we blame our body. I'm not producing enough milk. Mm -hmm. Usually it's actually the baby who's not very good at getting that milk out Interesting. And sometimes a mom doesn't feel like she has enough milk, but she has oversupply because that actually sometimes in the very beginning looks like not having enough, but there's always something. If a mom thinks that she has low supply, there's always, I've never met a mom who says that. And then there's absolutely nothing wrong. Right. So the number one, trust your instincts. If you think something's off, I mean, we have these incredible spidey senses that we know that something is off. So be open to it, maybe being something that you're not, you didn't know about, but it's always, you know, see an IVCLC. Uh, I highly recommend seeing a knowledgeable IVCLC if you can find one. Mm-hmm. And, um, but definitely trust your instincts. I just think that that is, I don't know. It's the number one thing is, find good help and trust your instincts. If you feel like something is off hundred percent. And I feel like even finding good help 
like trust your instincts on that too. If you're not getting the support that you feel like you deserve, or they are dismissing your fears or kind of brushing your concerns under the rug, like listen to that instinct because we, like you said, that spidey sense, I always say we have this innate ability to know Mm -hmm. exactly what is good for our baby and good for us and true to our mothering our mothering goals and what aligns with us and what doesn't like if if a nut, if something works for another mom and they tell you that and you're like that is great for you you know it doesn't mean that the advice isn't good it just might mean that the advice is not good for you and i feel like there's no shame in not taking it you know and i always hear also moms talk about like oh my supply just dried up at three months or four months or five months. I hear that all the time. Yes. Yes. And there's so many reasons that that happens, but the biggest thing to know with that is that once you have a full supply and your supply dips or starts to dry up, as some people say, it doesn't mean you can't get it back up. Mm-hmm. Um, there is no such thing as my milk just dried up. There was less removal for some reason, unless you took like a medication or something like that. But even that, even if we took a pharmaceutical or uh, birth control pills or something that mm-hmm. completely decreased supply, um, I always can get mama's milk supplies back up. So just mm-hmm. know that it's not an end thing. Also, I always hear these like random rules that people are told like, oh, you can only get your milk supply up for the first three weeks or for the first three months, or there's always, you know, different or your milk supply peaks at 12 weeks. No, 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 no. There, there isn't, there isn't a set rule. Everybody is totally different, but, um, you know, as long as there's not something medically going on, if you're able to produce enough milk, the timing really doesn't matter. Right. It's a supply and a demand, a push and pull. Just that knowledge of, you know, maybe moms feel like, oh no, I've run out of time. You know, I missed my window. I missed my peak. Um, Just having that information that you just shared can be so helpful and helping to put a mom's anxiety at ease thinking, okay, I still can take steps towards you know, being, if they want to be exclusively breastfeeding, because I feel like as soon as, you know, for me, when I brought my second baby to the hospital, she was totally healthy. She's little, I'm five foot. So my babies are little. And they were like, oh, well, if she doesn't gain a pound by the next visit, you're going to have to supplement with formula. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure I'm the mom. Like, and I can make that judgment call. Um, She looks healthy. And I feel like, again, trusting your instincts, you know, if your baby looks unhealthy and is too small or is um, not thriving, you know? And so I feel like formula is pushed so quickly onto a mom and that, that spikes your anxiety. Like, Oh, I'm already not doing enough. And my baby is one week old, you know, it's, I feel like there's just not the support for breastfeeding moms that I feel like is so commonly like told if you can't breastfeed and you need to use formula, like that's more supported in social media than like actually supporting moms that want to exclusively breastfeed because they're automatically pushed to use formula or that they're not making enough. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on, on that, the formula being pressed on moms right away, or just the idea that I feel like social media is telling us that breastfeeding moms are like the most supported and that it's like it's like turning down the support for moms that want to use formula or need to do a mix or whatever but I feel 
personally, like it's a, it's obviously both. There's like, a, it's a double-edged sword, social media, you know, that you can connect with so many people and share stories and you feel connected. But on the other end, it's like, if you say you like oranges, it's like, you're, you're hating on all other fruit that's out there. Like, and that's just like, not, not the point. Yeah. I mean, I have so many thoughts, but um... <laughs> yeah, I'm sure <laughs> the whole concept, you know, around, you know, breastfeeding moms being more supported or something like that. Yeah. I mean, I think sometimes what they're seeing is like, oh, this is why breastfeeding is really good for your baby. And that feels to them like, oh, they're more supported. But when you look at actually like when a mom goes to the pediatrician or in the hospital or whatever, it is not supported. The CDC's like breastfeeding reports depending on the state, it's like 20 to 60% of babies are getting formula within the first three days. And it's mind-blowing because 80% or maybe it's like 89, I can't even remember the numbers, but a real, most mothers want to breastfeed. And so is it really that biologically, none of us, we can't produce for our babies and they actually need that? Um, no, it's because healthcare workers don't trust it. Mm-hmm. They don't trust mom's bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so much easier for them to trust formula that they see in a bottle. They know what's going in. And, you know, the, that pediatrician in the office who is like, oh, if your baby doesn't grow enough, then we have to start formula. Mm-hmm. What, I mean, that trans, I want to translate that for moms into you know, oh, your baby's not growing as much as we want to see, you should see an IBCLC. They're the feeding experts. Right. And is your pediatrician a feeding expert? Do they have any of, do they have any concept of lactation? And no, unless they're also an IBCLC, which I even have thoughts on that, but no, you know, and so if we're, if they're not referring to somebody that is the feeding expert, And I mean, this is a whole nother story, but that also is very privileged because only certain um, people have insurance coverage that cover it or can afford to pay out of pocket for it. And so our whole medical system is just not set up to support breastfeeding moms. We're set up to be like, oh, just give formula. It's totally fine. Our society, starting with our medical system, starting with day one, like most people are giving birth in a hospital day one. It is not set up to support breastfeeding moms. That is so interesting. You can take it down to that level. It brings me back to my first birthing experience, which was, I was in 26 hours of labor. I ended with an emergency C-section and I was, I was devastated. Like I had kind of, I was having an out-of-body experience. Like I left my body as soon as they told me I was going to have a C-section, I'd never had a surgery, never broken a bone, like literally nothing. And, and it was just the opposite of what I wanted for myself and how I always saw my birth experience going. And, you know, because of medication that I was given, I wasn't able to breastfeed my baby for like four to six hours. And they just gave her formula. And it was, if that could have been communicated to me before, maybe an option, like maybe a different medication, like nobody asked me, are you okay with giving your baby formula when they're born? Because 
you're going to have a C-section and this medication is not going to allow you to do that. And I know there's options because my second C-section, which was planned and scheduled and a completely different experience, incredibly healing from my first, I was able to breastfeed right away. So I know there are options, but moms aren't even given the time of day when it comes to those options. And my first baby got formula against what I wanted, but I didn't know I had options. And that's why I always say like power comes from having knowledge. You are empowered by the knowledge that you have. And moms are not given that knowledge prior. And there's so much that is so much more important than having the perfect nursery, you know, and so much more important than having a baby shower and getting all the cute things. Like all of that is so fun, but how to push, how to breastfeed effectively. And do I have options when it comes to medication that I'm given? Is this going to impact my ability to breastfeed? I feel like that's maybe another topic to come into is does breastfeeding or the ability to breastfeed become impacted by having an unexpected C-section or even a planned C-section? And I'm sorry you had that experience. I also had a C-section with my first. I agree that moms are just not given their options, not only with like stuff like medication, but also around like, did you have an option to you know, supplement donor milk if needed, or right. And did they just assume like, Oh, you know, well in our hospital, it's out of pocket. There's some hospitals, like if your baby is born full term, then it's, you have to pay out of pocket for donor milk. And so they just assume that people don't want to pay out of pocket because insurance won't cover it. And instead of actually giving the you know, the knowledge around that. I know I have moms listening that are going to have a planned C-section. Will this impact their ability to breastfeed right away? Or will they need to use donor milk or will they need to use formula or can they breastfeed right away? Pretty much always, because I was able to breastfeed with my first, you know, it's not that all my milk came in immediately. It all, it does take time. Can moms expect to have no hiccups in their breastfeeding journey if they do have a C-section? First of all, yes, you can definitely breastfeed after a C-section, but I think it's really important to educate, be educated on the problems that can arise to be ready for them. So um, one thing with the C-section, and it, you know, it's a little bit different with whether it's planned mm-hmm. or whether it is after like 24 hours of labor. Um, but the amount of IV fluids that you get can greatly impact breastfeeding. Interesting. Planned, planned C-sections are actually better for that because you're on IV fluids for a lot less time. Okay. And if you, you know, are, have an epidural and you have 24 hours of labor with that epidural or even 10 hours of labor, and then you go in for a C-section and you just hours and hours and hours of these IV fluids, which even more so delay, um, milk, your milk coming in or transitioning. And also there's more of a chance of engorgement, which is really hard. It makes it harder for baby to latch. It also Mm -hmm. makes it more painful, all of that stuff. So we want to watch that in general with C-sections, just because we're not having these same hormones as if we were going to have um, the baby vaginally, it does tend to take our bodies a little bit longer to figure out that it is time for the milk to transition. Mm -hmm. And so the average time for the milk to come in per se is a little bit longer 
So we want to keep an eye on that and always know your donor milk options if that's something that's important to you. If you're giving birth in a hospital, know their policies around it. The other thing is, is that there's so many moms who breastfeed right away. Everything goes totally fine. And so we don't want to assume that it, it is going to go awry with a C-section. We want to be ready but definitely not assume because it, it can be, you know, completely fine. The other thing to think about, we want babies to, if possible, come out of the birth canal because they can use all of their reflexes. And then also once they go to breast, go to the chest, start crawling up the chest, um, that's using all of their reflexes, which sometimes with C-sections, we don't get that hour right away. We want to think about like, as soon as possible, let the baby still do that. Even if you don't have that golden hour, that's right yeah. after a vaginal birth, they still have all of those primitive reflexes that they want to use that will help them later for breastfeeding. Because just like I said earlier, with them moving around and mapping their body, when we let them use their reflexes at breast also, they're mapping that pattern. And first their reflexes are taking them through like proper breastfeeding and proper latch and letting them even just try that is just so important. And so I see that a lot, like moms have a vaginal birth and they go for the golden hour and let the baby try to latch themselves. Um, but with C-section, oftentimes they don't and they think, well, I didn't get it, but you can do that anytime. So let the baby use their reflexes, even if it's an hour later or whenever, two days later. I love that. And, you know, speaking on the golden hour and feeling like, you know, you, you didn't get that. I definitely experienced that with my first, I felt like I got really gypped and they didn't really tell me that I wasn't going to be able to go in right away. They actually like left me in a room with a nurse and they waited until I could feel my toes again. It took almost 45 minutes to even get into the room with my husband and the baby. Uh, and the same thing happened with my second, but I knew what was coming. And so I was able to process that a little bit more, but both times my husband actually did the skin to skin first and he got the golden hour, which, you know, I wish that I, I could have had it, but also I think it was really really powerful for him and a special bonding moment for them. And also, like you said, my baby still got to use her instincts and, and do that body mapping and actually even tried to breastfeed on my husband, which he, he, the way he tells it is so funny because he was like, I could, I did not even know or understand that the baby could like crawl like that. She was literally cra crawling up my body and trying to nurse. Like they just know what to do. Like, and so yeah. The baby doesn't have to miss out just because you're having a C-section um, there. You have the option of having dad do it. And, and then, you know, you know, even if you didn't get that hour, the golden hour, that's just like propped up on this special pedestal. That's only for vaginal moms. Uh, you can still do that, you know, in the next hour, whenever you get back to your baby, uh, oh, you can minute. still have that special time and let your, your baby use all those reflexes and, tap into the instincts and all those things that are so important, you know, um, if you, if you want to do that still, you still have the option to do that. And so I feel like that takes a lot of the anxiety away too, because 
there's so much around this golden hour. And if you know you're having a C-section for medical reasons or by choice, like I chose my second C-section, it was so healing for me and such a different experience. But knowing that my baby can still get all those benefits, even if I don't get my golden hour. Exactly. So. There's not only one golden hour that that's yeah. it. <laughs> right. You know, they're all golden. <laughs> Right. And it's golden because that's like when they're really awake in that first 24 hours, if you didn't have any medication and, but that doesn't mean that two days later, even that they're, those primitive reflexes are integrated or, you know, you can't see them anymore. And it's yeah. not just cool. It's so good for them to use it. So yeah, I, yeah. I love yeah, dad doing it too. Chiming in to share my number one postpartum pick for breastfeeding or bottle feeding mamas. The Snuggle Me Organic Feeding Support Pillow, or as I like to call it, my moon pillow, is a total game changer. I feel like I could say that all boppies need to be burned. This pillow is crafted with narrow ends that tuck behind your back or side and have a thick center that brings baby right to your breast. This will totally save your back. The outer shell is made of 100% organic cotton, which is a non-toxic and breathable material. They even have washable covers in a ton of colors. This is the only pillow you need to bring to the hospital, I promise. We also have the loungers in both of the sizes and my girls completely live in theirs. I have an exclusive Daily Momship podcast discount for listeners. Use code JESSIE10 to save 10% off anything on their site. Now let's get back to the show. Personally, I've caught so much heat from sharing on social media about breastfeeding my toddler, who is 18 months, in my opinion, still a little tiny baby. Um, Many troll comments about her having so many teeth and still breastfeeding. Like I've also seen comments about babies that have teeth and our breastfeeding have more cavities. Do you have thoughts on that? All the trolls, I mean, they all have something different. Like some of them say if they have teeth, they shouldn't teeth, they shouldn't be breastfeeding. If they can ask for it, they shouldn't yeah, be yeah. breastfeeding. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm like, you know, my one of my kids was signing at like seven months, which is really yeah. early. Yeah. Me, asking for breastfeeding. Yeah. I mean, so what I'm not supposed to then. I know. Or, if a kid has challenges and they can't, you know, or if a kid right. is, what about these kids that are born with teeth? I guess they can't. <laughs> yeah. So there are babies born with teeth. I got so yeah. many DMs and comments like, this is the craziest thing. Like my baby had teeth when they were born. What is the option then? Like don't breastfeed that baby because they have teeth like straight to food. Like it's just crazy what people come up with. Oh. I know. Yeah. So yeah, the trolls will be the trolls. Yeah. But <laughs> as, <laughs> as far as cavities, um, if there is a proper latch, um, the milk doesn't even touch the teeth. It's really interesting. Like Ooh. our bodies are so smart because basically the tongue will wrap around the nipple create a vacuum and the milk shoots to the back of the palate where they swallow and babies aren't, first of all, if it's touching any teeth area, it's molar area, it's only, you know, if a baby doesn't have a proper latch, it's not pooling up here. Usually when we're seeing these cavities, they're towards the front of the mouth. And, but yeah, it goes, it goes to the back. Our, our bodies are smart. We're smarter than this, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So then someone might say, well, what about the babies that don't have a good latch or the toddlers that have a poor latch? 
Yeah, well, if they've made it this far, they're compensating pretty well in some ways, and they're probably getting the milk to at least shoot back. And let's say we said, okay, maybe. But then if we actually just look at the breast milk, there's properties in breast milk that actually are prevent that prevent cavities. No. It's just, it just like, hello, so smart. <laughs> Right. You know, of course there are breastfeeding babies who get cavities. And so we're like, well, why are some getting these cavities and making these dentists think that? And this kind of goes into more of like my gut health studies, breastfeeding or not, you know, we are set up for different gut health based on our parents' gut health, our grandparents. It is passed down from generations to generation. And there are some people who are more susceptible. Now, is it breastfeeding that's causing it? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. It is not. But there will be some breastfeeding toddlers that do have decay, but it is not because they are breastfeeding. It is, they are, you know, not set up for success. Most likely there's a lot of gut issues. Maybe they also with these gut issues, maybe they also don't have a proper latch, which, you know, maybe makes it a little more likely, especially when they're having food, if they have a diet that's high in sugars. Um, but from my experience with helping moms with this issue, we can always go back and pinpoint some gut issues and diet issues. So whenever I'm wondering about a baby's gut health, I always talk to mom about her gut health. Mm -hmm. So whether that's a pooping issue or dental decay or something like that, because the babies have our gut mm -hmm. and it does seem like partner's gut does contribute, but it is so linked to our gut health. And we know like it, it does actually go back generations to oftentimes, you know, you don't have to like see somebody to heal baby's gut. You just need to see somebody to help heal mom. Mm -hmm. So whether that's a naturopath or a functional medicine doctor, but we shouldn't necessarily concentrate so much on the baby at that point. We should concentrate on our own gut, especially for breastfeeding. Mm -hmm. And we don't want to stop breastfeeding. Sometimes um, people think, well, I guess if my gut's bad, then I don't, I shouldn't breastfeed. Uh -huh. It's actually, we have to think about this as an opportunity that we can heal our guts while we're healing theirs at the same time. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's an, an amazing opportunity. Our guts are the most malleable between zero and three. Oh, and wow. so we have a long time, you know, and we're shaping that what we're eating is important. I think that one of the biggest lies out there is telling moms, like, it doesn't matter what you eat when you're pregnant, or it doesn't matter what you eat when you're breastfeeding, your milk's going to be exactly the same. Mm -hmm. While, you know, the carbohydrates and fats and proteins are going to be the same. There's so much more that goes into that. And a lot of IBCLCs know that, but don't like to share that information because they think it will stop people from breastfeeding. Um, but I like to give people information because I think people actually will do something with it. And yeah. instead of, you know, instead of gas, gaslighting people and saying, oh, it doesn't matter. Like it actually does matter. Mm -hmm. Let's, you know, this is, it matters 
which is okay. It just gives us the opportunity to also take care of ourselves and know that it matters. Mm -hmm. Moms want to, I think they want to do what's best. And I think the majority of the time, mom just doesn't know, you know, because there's so much information out there. So finding sources that you trust and can trust and taking what aligns with you and doing something with it and taking what feels like it's within your capacity, right? You don't have to change everything all at once, but making these small changes and making these small steps towards improving, whether it's your gut health, whether it's more movement, whether it's, you know, increasing your supply or anything that you want to do as a mom, like having more knowledge gives you more power to do those things and empowers you to, to take those steps, whatever those look like for you. So I love that you do share that within your own practice, share that with your clients, because you're giving them the tools and resources to advocate for themselves and advocate for their babies. Um, I think it's really powerful. Do you have thoughts about the social media trend that I've seen about moms ending breastfeeding for their mental health? Do you feel like moms are truly supported? It feels like this weird kind of like tug of war between formula and breastfeeding moms on social media and making the choice to support mom's mental health is kind of like equaling you have to use formula. First of all, I totally support anybody doing anything for their mental health. Yeah. But we have to look into the reason why moms are needing to stop breastfeeding for their mental health, right? If they're stopping, you know, breastfeeding for their mental health, did they actually get good help? Did they have good support? Because we know that most mothers want to breastfeed. And so when they're stopping for for their mental health, usually there is something that has gone wrong because when breastfeeding isn't going well, it can be extremely mentally challenging. Mm -hmm. And when you're not getting not just support because we can have all the support in the world, but if everything is going wrong and we don't know how to fix it, like we need really good help. Mm -hmm. Like it can be super draining. I had somebody recently reach out to me and say that they're going to stop pumping because it keeps reminding them of how they couldn't breastfeed. And, you know, there's just so many people that they didn't get that good help. They don't have that covered by insurance or there's nobody in their community and they, you know, can't afford virtual help or whatever that is. I mean, I think it all just goes back to how our society praises breastfeeding and we have so much knowledge around why we should breastfeed our babies and all of us see that and we're like, yeah, I want to do this. And then we're thrown into this, you know, medical system where our doctors know nothing about breastfeeding and, you know, nobody trusts the female body, hardly anybody. There's even so many IVCLCs aren't super knowledgeable past like the first couple of days or getting baby to latch on or, you know, And so we're not set up for help. I mean, part of me is like, yeah, I don't, I don't blame any of these people because what are they supposed to do? Right. I feel like there's this notion of like, it will come natural. It's like it, everything just comes natural and it'll just come easy. And then when it doesn't, first of all, you probably feel like 
something's wrong with me. Like, what am I doing wrong? Like you said earlier, like it all comes back to like my body. What is, why isn't my body like doing what everybody said was going to be so natural. And then when you get the support, like the support is like, yeah, breastfeeding is so good. Make sure you're doing that. That's what's best for baby. And then when you don't get tangible tools to, to make that experience better, they're like, well, something's wrong with me. I, I need my baby to get, you know, nutrients. I'm just going to do formula because nobody is giving me any tools. Like, I don't know where to turn. I can't afford, you know, these things. It's yeah. And, and it's, it's stress totally- inducing, you know, the mom just yeah. wants to make sure their baby is healthy. And if they can't do it because it's super painful or their nipples are cracked and you're not getting the tools, it's not just like support. Like, yeah, if, you know, breastfeeding is amazing and you should do it that's supportive, but also how can I do this better and more effectively? And when you don't get that, it's stressful. Totally. And I think the part that really like gets to me on social media though, is that what tends to happen is that, you know, sometimes it's the mom, sometimes it's just other moms looking back or the trolls or whatever, but they blame breastfeeding, but it's not breastfeeding it's our lack of support and help around it that is to blame so we have to just stop blaming breastfeeding and letting our healthcare system and everything else off the hook because it's not the breastfeeding it's all of the rest of it but as an in like each individual mom yeah I mean you have to if if you can't find that and it just feels overwhelming to you, then they have to take care of their mental health. Right. If you can't show up in a way that serves you and your baby, then you're doing both of you a disservice. You know, lastly, I know you have a specialty in oral function. So what do we need to know about tongue ties, lip ties? Who is a qualified person to diagnose these um, and who is not qualified? I guess the first thing, if you are thinking that your baby might have a tie. Um, In my opinion, the best thing to do is to see an IBCLC first, but you have to make sure that this IBCLC um, actually has training in oral function and assessment. Um, And I help moms find these IBCLCs all the time. I do it virtually um, and in person, you know, because if you go to this IBCLC and they assess the tie and then say, oh yeah, I think that your baby um, has a tongue tie or doesn't have enough range of motion in their tongue, something like that. And they send you to a dentist. Nope. They don't know. Okay. Because what you need to see is somebody who is looking at function and says, you know, this is what's lacking with the oral cavity, not just the tongue, the whole, like the whole body, but you know, if we're looking right at the oral cavity and looking at breastfeeding and the most important thing, in my opinion, for good outcomes with, with tie releases is the work that we do ahead of time. So every baby compensates in a different way. And the most important work for ties is the work that's done beforehand. And so many people just skip that and go straight to a relief provider. Mm -hmm. And what I do with babies is we work, and so many other really good IBCLCs, 
will work on their strength or their coordination or whatever that is, because after they get a release, their tongue is tired and they don't want to work on it. Then mm -hmm. they're going to be relying on their reflexes and we need to map their body, map that movement so that when they get that release, they can move their tongue properly. They can move their cheeks the way we want them to their body. So I think that's the most important thing is to make sure you find that provider, that IBCLC, who's doing that. And if they're knowledgeable in that area, then I know that they will know exactly who to go to if your baby needs body work. They will also know who the best release provider is. I really think that finding that good IBCLC, even if you live in a rural area, finding that person virtually who can manage the whole process and make sure that your baby is getting, is ready for release. Mm -hmm. It makes everything afterwards so much easier. Yeah. And I feel like that type of mentality of like doing the prep work before going and having any type of surgery, it's the same way that I think about pelvic floor diastasis you know, that is a symptom, you know, these, we're trying to correct some symptom, a poor latch, right? But the poor latch is coming from this root thing that is happening. And there's so much that can be done before you go, you're not doing the prep work for this release, that baby's going to be tired. And since you haven't mapped out all of these new motor recruitment patterns and, and ranges of motion, they're probably going to be compensating because they just had a release work, which is probably a little bit uncomfortable. They're tired. And so compensation is going to happen anyways, if they don't have those things kind of mapped out as you keep saying, you know, and I just, I just love that, you know, doing the prep work before going and addressing that release so that it just makes everything go a little bit smoother post surgery. Okay. Next question, your best tips on weaning a toddler. Yeah. So toddler, first of all, that's a really big age range right? Yeah. Yeah. So I do think that it's different. It, you know, a 20 month old is totally different than a four-year-old. And so like anything, like anything, it's all individual. However, number one tip is communicate, really communicate that with them over and over at their level. You don't have to say like, we're taking this away forever and we're going to do it slow, you know, but let them know exactly what's happening. If we're taking down, um, like the time of feeds, we're only going to breastfeed for five minutes, you know, or that might, might be, we're only going to breastfeed when this leg is on or when we're in this chair, whatever that plan is, um, really communicate that because that communication, I think always makes things go much smoother. My next tip is, you know, just to go slow if possible. Yeah. You know, I know that there's different reasons why somebody might need to wean and for, you know, some people they might need to go faster, both for the transition and for your breast health, um, but also hormonally. Mm -hmm. Weaning, no matter when you wean, is the biggest swing in hormones um, most moms find it's an even crazier hormone, like mood swing than um, giving birth. So going slow for that reason also is really important. You know, there's some that there's some people who want to just wean at night. There's some people who mm -hmm. like 
three-year-old wants to nurse every hour <laughs> or something during yeah. the day, more of like daytime distraction, you know? Like changing up routine, I feel like is so helpful. Like yeah, if there's exactly. a certain, like, like you said, time of day, but also like maybe in a certain area of the house or a specific uh-huh. spot, like just changing up what you're usually doing at that time. When I weaned my toddler who was two, I was also pregnant at the same time. And we actually were, we were like weaning slowly, but just based on like her want and need, I had like no really like desire to like end it at a certain point. I really was just leaving it up to her. And I know that doesn't work for everybody, but that's just how I chose to do it. But we had actually gone on a vacation to California. We live in Oklahoma and we were there for like three weeks and we were going back and visiting family. So everything was different. Our entire routine of literally everything was different. And we were big on nursing to sleep. That was like her comfort. And I was actually only producing milk on one side at this point, because I think because I was pregnant, it was just like taking a lot out of me. And she wasn't nursing that much, like, you know, for nourishment, it was more just for support and connection. And I think by like going, I know not everybody can like leave home for three weeks, but like for us, that's what did it. Like she ended up being so tired during the day from all the interaction with all our family and the activities and everything that by the end of the night, she was already just tired and would just fall asleep. And like, I would, we wouldn't like nurse at all. And by the time we got back home, it was just, I didn't even realize when the last nursing session we had was because it just happened so gradually. And so on her own really on her own timeline. And um, that's what did it for us. I don't know if we would have, I don't know how I would have stopped before because I was kind of leaving it up to her, but that change in our routine, like that was, that was the end point for us. And so I think- No, that's perfect. I I mean, I think that even if somebody can't go out of town, I do think that I always talk about getting babies extra tired during the day. Mm-hmm. And I say babies, but I think they're all babies. They're babies. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm still a baby. That's how I feel about myself. <laughs> right, exactly. You know, um, like this time of year, we don't have to go out of town. We can go to like a pumpkin patch all day and then do all have so many activities so they don't feel like they're missing out on something. Yeah. And then it does feel like more on their time a little bit, like you said, even though we're nudging it. Mm-hmm. Something that I was talking about recently on my own account, and I got so many messages um, from my moms in my community that are currently pregnant or trying to conceive, but are also nursing a baby right now or, or a toddler. Um, are there any risks that we should be aware of of breastfeeding during pregnancy? Is that going to negatively impact conceiving or are there any risks that we need to like be aware of or is it completely fine to nurse through an entire pregnancy or what are, what are, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So as long as, um, your doctor hasn't put you on pelvic rest, so pelvic rest would mean that you can't have sex. Um, and there are certain medical issues with pregnancy where you might be on pelvic rest. Those for those, we also say we want to refrain from best breastfeeding, but if you're having a normal pregnancy, there is no increased risk, uh, when you're breastfeeding. So I'd say the one that I hear most often is that it's going to put you into preterm labor. That is not the case at all. Our uterus has 
oxytocin receptors and breastfeeding produces oxytocin. That's one of the, one of the key hormones. However, the oxytocin receptors in our uterus are actually not open until we're ready to go into labor and give birth because we also, there's so much oxytocin released when we have sex, when we are just loving on our kids in general, or if our partner is giving us a massage or something like that. So it's not just breastfeeding and it's not just nipple stimulation, you know, that can do that. In fact, when we're pregnant and we're breastfeeding, oftentimes there is actually less oxytocin because it doesn't feel nice and we're not loving it. Um, (laughs) But, um, but yeah, so it, but there's no risk because those oxytocin receptors on the uterus are not open. That is so interesting. And it just goes to show how much like fear-based content is out there without a backing of knowledge of how the human body works. Uh, because right. if you just have like basic knowledge of these hormones, then you know oxytocin is not just released by breastfeeding your baby then we would be scared of having sex, which I know there is a fear of having sex while you're pregnant, um, you know, that you're going to like hurt the baby or whatever, but specifically to that preterm labor thought, if you just understand how your body releases oxytocin and when it does, then you would understand that, you know, if, if you are in an intimate situation with your partner, or if you are loving on your kids, your body is still releasing that oxytocin and nobody is worried about your pregnancy then and giving more power to moms during their pregnancy to be able to dispel these myths, you know, and just calm their anxiety. Because I feel like all of that content, all of that type of content just fuels mom anxiety and will end that breastfeeding relationship with her toddler while she's pregnant because she's scared of harming her unborn baby, which is just, that's just not how the body works. Because like you keep saying, our body is so smart two questions that I ask every guest that comes on. And that is what would your number one piece of advice you would give to your past self as a first time mom? Number one piece of advice to myself, um, would probably be to tune out the noise Tune out the noise. and yeah, tune out the noise. And again, trust my instincts. I, I was recently looking back at an Instagram post that I posted when my second was born. He was probably about five months old. And, you know, this was probably right before I started to go into lactation. And I was in his room holding him to sleep and he just looked so peaceful. But in my caption, the first thing that I said was, I know I'm not supposed to hold him to sleep. And I just, you know, I'm like, wow, it's amazing how, you know, and I actually did hold my kids to sleep all the time and like would wear them to sleep and everything. But I was ashamed of sharing that because I felt like, oh, I'm not supposed, I'm doing something wrong and now I'm sharing it. So I'm saying like, oh, I'm not, I know I'm not supposed to, but so definitely tune out the noise, trust my instincts yeah, I don't know. I wish that's gold. I mean, that's gold. Right there. <laughs> I mean, just that it's like, 
you're doing what feels natural to you and what feels good. And you know, it feels good for your baby because your baby is just so peaceful and at home right there on your chest, but you're automatically assuming that somebody is going to think something shameful or judge you. And so you're just putting that like, that like precursor, like, I'm sorry, I'm doing this. I know I'm not supposed to. And, but like, where did we get that? You know, that's just, just another example of how nobody is trusting moms. You know, our society doesn't trust moms to make the best choices for their babies. And I feel like if your choices out of, out of what's best for you and baby and out of love, then there's, there's no wrong choices there. You know, that's just, you're just doing what's best for you and your baby. And, and we have to listen to that. So I love, I love your advice. I also, I, and I just thought of one other thing that I want to add. That's add it totally in, different. add it in. Um, but I wish I would have known how to be an ad, more of an advocate for myself and my baby. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was younger, that is something that I am definitely very good at now, but I didn't have that when my babies were young. And like, when I went to that breastfeeding group and they were like, oh no, everything's fine. Like if, you know, a lot of people think they don't have enough milk or if the doctor, you know, said something like that. I wish that back then, I would have been able to say, no, you're wrong and I need a referral or just keep looking. And, um, you know, we actually recently switched pediatricians and I look back and I'm like, I should have done that years and years and years ago. And I, but I, I wasn't able to vocalize that and advocate for myself as much as I am now. And I wish that on every um, new mom too. A hundred percent. I feel like a lot of this has to do with like this generational, it's like a generational thing too. It's like, nobody's like, again, comes back to like, we don't trust you because you have zero experience. Your baby is two weeks old. You have two weeks experience of being a mom. And so we know better. I, you know, whether it's your mom, your mother-in-law, a grandma, an aunt, a friend, whatever, an expert on social media. It's like, you have, I've, I have way more experience in this. So like the thing that you're telling me or the thing that you're feeling, like we need to just ignore that because I'm telling you, I, I've raised babies for longer or whatever. And I feel like that, that piece of advice is so important because I feel like a lot of new moms, even, you know, myself too, like I struggled with setting these boundaries and understanding like a boundary is not meant to be hurtful to anybody around you. It is to make sure that you can protect yourself, your baby, your mental health. And that's our number one job. You know, we are the gatekeepers of our home. We're the gatekeepers of our children. And we should feel empowered to lay those boundaries. And the people that are not going to respect those boundaries, they don't need to be a part of your situation. And if it, if it's family or if it's, you know, support and resources and doctors, you know, it is your job to make the call to change. That is lost on so many new moms because they do feel like they don't have the authority to do that. And, and you do, you absolutely do it. And it's your right as a mom and it's your job. It's your job as a mom too. So I love that. They all work work for you. 
Exactly. And we forget, we forget yeah. that. And I think they forget that too. Like we, yeah. like you, we're, you, we're employing you. Like that is your job to work for me as a mom and as a, a client, you know, and if it's not working out, you don't get to tell me, like I get to go figure out who is a better fit. hundred um, percent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We forget that they forget that. And it's our job to make sure that everybody falls within those boundaries. And there is somebody out there for you that fits those boundaries. Last question. In your hard seasons of motherhood, what is your mantra to get you through those hard times? Yeah, I mean, I do think about, you know, my mantra mantra is what would I what would I have wanted myself to do if looking back, if 10 years later I'm looking back at this situation, what decision would I have wanted to make? For instance, um, my son has been on and off co-sleeping with us um, forever. And he is now 10. And I would say just within the last year, he has stopped coming in our room. And, you know, my husband is always like, well, I don't know if this is right. Like if, you know, he's eight years old, should he still be co-sleeping? And I always tell him this too. I'm like, if we look back in 10 years and we knew that we were giving him the love and support he needed. Would we be happy, happier with ourselves that we supported him in that way and gave him that love? Or would we be happier with ourselves? We were like, no, you have to stay in your room locked. It doesn't matter if you have a nightmare. It doesn't matter, you know? So whatever that is, I try to think about like looking back. My kids are old enough now where, you know, my daughter is almost 12 and I can look back 10 yeah. years and like, oh, I wish that I wouldn't have been so worried about all of this stuff. And I would have just trusted my instincts. So now I do think like always, like once they're out of the house in 10 years and I'm looking back how, you know, at these situations, what will I wish I would have chosen? And that perspective. usually guides Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like perspective is such a gift uh, that you can give yourself because being able to look on a situation as if you were looking on it from the future can be so, it is so guiding and can be so helpful, especially like parenting is so hard. Parenting has been the biggest mirror into the things that we need to parent in ourselves, right? And undo these cycles. And I think that for me, when I think about that saying that you just said, how would I have wanted myself to react to that tantrum? How would I wanted myself to react to these things? And it doesn't have to be 10 years. It could be in next last next week, you know, like exactly. It was that tantrum. Exactly. Like, no, it's, no, it's exactly right. Like if a week from now, will that tantrum have even mattered? Like probably not, but like how I responded has an impact that, that mantra, you know, can be applied to literally everything in parenting. Before we end off, where can people find you, Kelly? What are your current offerings and services and where can people find you? Yeah, so um, on Instagram, I'm Kelly IBCLC and my website is actually BV Lactation, as in Boulder Valley Lactation. And I also offer classes on Baby Prep University along with two other 
amazing IBCLCs. So breastfeeding classes, starting solids classes. I'm actually this week getting ready to upload a poop class. Nice. And yeah. So um, that's, it's really great. We're trying to get information, really good information out there to mamas that, you know, that need it for an affordable price. And I think that's about it. <laughs> amazing. Amazing. All right, Kelly. Well, you guys can find her at bvlactation.com. I'm going to add all of her information into the show notes so you guys can easily find all of her communities and services. Kelly, thank you so much for joining me today. It was a pleasure talking to you. And there are so many golden nuggets of education and um, empowering knowledge in here. And I'm really glad we had the chance to sit down and chat. Yeah, it was my pleasure. It was so great talking. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Daily Mantra Podcast. If you did, be sure to subscribe. Also, before you go, I would love you forever if you could rate and review this podcast, share it with a mom friend or on social media. And when you do, be sure to tag me, Move With True Love or Daily Mantra Pod on Instagram. And again, thank you so much, you guys, for listening.